Hey, other, whoa, whoa. Man, and I thought I could project here. I, I'm good. This little space here, I could fill the room. I don't even need the amplification here. Sorry, for those of you in the back, do I get a running start again here? Kind of run up here. I was just getting into my preacher thing here. I was like, all right, Jesus is moving towards the cross. I have a little visual here that Dave showed last week, which is helpful because not only is Jesus moving, his whole ministry is moving towards the cross. He's moving geographically towards the cross. He started all the way in the far north. If you remember back at uh, the Transfiguration, Jesus is as far north as you can possibly be, as far away from Jerusalem as he could be. But he is on his way, following that red line down towards Jerusalem with a head-on collision with the religious establishment, with the Roman authorities, and it's all going to lead at Easter. We're going to be, we're going there. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, the cross, but, <clears throat> but as this unfolds, as this story unfolds in Mark, we, we get this conversation about the rich young ruler. Now, in Mark's account, he's just a uh, a rich man. Uh, we learn that he's young in Matthew. We learn that he's a ruler in Luke. Uh, and we get this story, which at first glance looks like here is a man who's asking the right questions, 
um, from, and he's the right kind of person, right? He's asking about eternal life. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And not only is he asking the right questions, right? He is running up to Jesus. He's on his knees asking him, you know, earnestly, passionately about it looks like to enter eternal life. This man would not have been thinking about going to heaven when he died. Uh, this is helpful for us to understand in our, we might think, yeah, how do I go to heaven when I die? How do I inherit eternal life? But this man would have been thinking about God's eternal kingdom coming to earth, right? That's what he was anticipating. He's like, when heaven comes to earth, how do I get to be a part of what you're doing? And we see this because Jesus uses eternal life in verse 17 and 30, almost interchangeably with the kingdom of God. They're, they're almost synonyms in this text here. This man is talking about life in God's eternal kingdom. How do I be a part of that? How do I get to be a part of that great kingdom, that eternal life? And so, uh, this young man is earnest about eternal life, about being in the kingdom of God. And I imagine if you're here this morning, you're here because you want eternal life, right? You want to be, you want a place in the kingdom of God. You want into the kingdom of God, to what God is doing in the world. And so we've got a beautiful question teed up for us this morning to answer, but Jesus has a rather hard-hitting response to what seems to be a great question, an innocent question. Jesus is going to give this man a very direct answer, and what I want you to see from that answer is this. It's the, a big idea for my sermon this morning, and it's this, that the call to follow Jesus and be a part of his kingdom comes with a high cost and an even greater reward. The call to follow Jesus and be a part of his kingdom comes with a high cost and an even greater reward. And as we break this down here, I got three points for you. As always, got to have my, uh, gotta have my nicely non-alliterated three points here. Uh, with the cost of discipleship, we're going to notice the impossibility of discipleship and the rewards of discipleship. And my aim for this morning's sermon is that we would see Jesus' tenderness in revealing the areas we need to surrender so that we can gain things we can never lose. And so let's pray that God would meet us this morning as we dive into this challenging text this morning. Father, we all have areas in our lives that need to be surrendered uh, to you, there are parts of us that we know that will make a shipwreck of our faith if we don't deal with them. So would you help us see Jesus' tenderness in exposing these areas of our lives so that we can get the help that we need to become the people you are calling us to be? And would you get all the glory, uh, God, by lives that are changed and transformed uh, and about the work of your great kingdom. So would you come this morning as we dive into your word, uh, help us by your spirit, guide us, lead us, convict us, challenge us, encourage us in all the ways we need to be ministered to this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are diving in here with the cost of discipleship, right? Jesus is given a question, in fact, the question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus hits back here with the cost of discipleship, with what we've got to give up to follow Jesus. And the illustration that Mark offers for us 
um, the situation in which Jesus takes the opportunity to unpack this beautiful reality is right here for us in Mark chapter uh, 10. And I want to read again verses 17 through uh, 22. When he was setting out on his journey, a rich man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear witness. Do, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have. Give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Here is a man who throws dignity to the wind, and he runs to Jesus. Not something any important rich person would have done in Jesus' days. He, he falls at Jesus' feet. He asks him this striking question, but Jesus is not impressed by the theatrics or the politely worded question. He reminds the man, no one is good except God. And now keep that in the back of your mind, because this is a point that's going to be very relevant in this conversation, right? Jesus recognizes, Jesus sees through this man already, and he's already going to give this man uh, something to Think about, and then he goes on to list several of the commandments that characterize life in the kingdom of God. This is how God's kingdom operates. If you're familiar with the Bible, you might recognize some of these from the Ten Commandments. We have commandments six through nine, murder, don't commit murder, adultery, theft, perjury. None of those things are going to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus adds a prohibition on defrauding, not, not one of the ten, but very relevant, obviously, to a rich person, many of whom made their wealth at the expense of all of the poor people around them. Um, and then, of course, uh, he adds uh, commandment four about honoring parents. So he's kind of skipping around, selects five commandments out of the ten commandments to elaborate on. Without any hesitation, right, the man affirms that he's kept all of these since his youth, right? He's clearly a very devout religious person. To be able to say that with any integrity, like, I mean, you'd have to be a pretty devout religious person. Now, obviously, not everybody's murdered somebody or committed adultery, and, you know, those are, those are doable, you know, theft, perjury, like, you know, he's avoided all the big notorious sins, right? He's so far lived a devout, and from what everyone can tell, exemplary life. And it appears that God is rewarding him for living such a devout, exemplary life. Not only is he, okay, he's not handsome and good-looking that we know, but he's wealthy. He's doing very well for himself. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't challenge his statement about keeping these commandments since his youth. In fact, Mark tells us, Jesus looked at him and loved him. I, I love to imagine these moments, right? Just, just Jesus just pauses and it's just like, man, just locks eyes with this guy. As Jesus so often does in the gospel, he's fully focused, fully engaged. You get the sense that when you're in Jesus' presence, right, you were the only person that mattered. He just, like everyone else, just kind of fades out. Jesus looks at this guy and he loves him. I, I love that statement and I love what Jesus does next, because Jesus, because of his great love for this man, 
he takes the conversation deeper. He's like, okay, all right, you've kept some of the commandments. Good for you. Um, Let's go a little deeper, shall we, into this discussion. And so Jesus says, well, there's really only one thing you lack, just just one, just one minor detail. Just go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me, come be my disciple. Where is this call to sell everything coming from, right? That's not in the Ten Commandments. Everyone should go and sell all that they have and follow Jesus. It seems to be coming out of left field, right? We might even be tempted to feel sorry for this guy, right? He seems to be doing all the right things. He's asking all the right questions, and Jesus raises the bar to seemingly impossible heights. Go sell everything that you have and go follow me. Who would like to get that invitation today from Jesus here? <laughs> go sell all of your possessions and follow me. That, that's weighty, right? This man certainly thinks so, and that's why he walks away disheartened, sad. Uh, the Greek is literally in shock. Like he's literally like not the, not the answer he was, not the question he was expecting from Jesus at all. And interestingly, this man isn't the only one shocked by Jesus' call on his life. The disciples, interestingly, are equally perplexed. In fact, they're astonished. Uh, the, the series that we're preaching on, we're calling Amazed by Jesus. And we see again some of that amazement in this text. Uh, notice what the disciple, how the disciples respond in verse 23 through 26. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word. But Jesus said to them again, children, riffing off of uh, this ch- children theme we've seen the last couple of weeks, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Like, if this guy can't be saved, like, who can be saved? If this rich guy who's got it all together kept the law, like, if you're going to turn this guy away, if you're going to tell him to sell everything, who can get saved, right? Do you, do you feel the weight of that this morning, thinking about liquidating all of your assets, selling your home, <laughs> selling your car, and uh, your, your prized Fender guitar, whatever, whatever you have, like just think of what that would be like to just liquidate all of your assets and just go and follow Jesus, go move to Turkey like Ken and Rhonda, or go uh, you know, head out onto uh, yeah, the mission field, uh, go do urban ministry in some great American City, Jesus is putting a pretty remarkable call on this man. What's he doing here? I think it's important here to notice and recognize something here. Uh, what Jesus is often doing, uh, which commands Jesus doesn't mention. If you're looking at the Ten Commandments, Jesus picks five commandments intentionally. He doesn't even go like one, two, three, four, five. I mean, he, he goes and just selectively picks about half of the commands. It's interesting the commandments Jesus doesn't mention, right? Jesus doesn't mention commandments one through four about having no other gods before me, about taking the name's, Lord's name in vain or having idols, right? Remembering the Sabbath, right? Jesus doesn't mention commandment 10. Do you know what commandment 10 is? That last one in the uh, list there. Don't covet, right? Your neighbor's house or wives or all of these different possessions, right? Jesus leaves out some of what would have been the most relevant commandments for someone with a lot of of money, and I think that's 
telling, right? Jesus isn't adding something entirely new here. He's simply revealing an idol, a counterfeit God in this man's life. He's saying, you know, you might be doing good on commandments six through nine there, but you miss commandments one through three, which is putting God first and foremost in your life, right? We know this because this man is not willing to part with his riches even to be with Jesus, to be one of his disciples. He's gotten a personal invitation to be a disciple of Jesus. What an incredible honor. What an incredible privilege. But he values his riches more than his relationship with Jesus, right? That's powerful, right? We see here, this man has missed what the Ten Commandments are all about, the heart of the Ten Commandments, right? You don't break the other, you know, seven commandments until you've broken those first three commandments where God has been displaced in your life. He's put riches before God, violation of commandment number one. He's dishonored Jesus' name, violation of commandment number two. And then he's clearly making an idol of riches, right? Riches, Riches have taken the place of God in his life. The great irony is that while he says that he wants to know how to inherit eternal life, when Jesus gives him an invitation to eternal life, it's more of the riches of this world that have, its, have his heart. It's the riches, the material possessions that he has that have such a firm grip on his heart that he's not going to be able to make it into God's kingdom unless he can leave those riches behind. Don't miss Jesus' heart in this passage. Jesus looks this man in the eye. Jesus loves him, right? And Jesus is going for his heart. He's willing to tell this man the hard truth, right? Not because he's just wanting to blow him off, but because he loves him so much. So he tenderly identifies the one thing standing between him and becoming disciples, his great riches. That's the one thing that is holding him back. And we would be foolish, I think, today not to consider this cost living in the most affluent society in human history, right? Well, we might not think money has a hold on our hearts, think of all the ways it tempts us, right? Money offers comfort, security, and safety. Just think of how much, I know, security, I get a nice bank account, have a nice savings account. You have that emergency, Dave Ramsey emergency fund put away here for a rainy day, and so I'm going to be fine, right? You know, think of how much security we get out of that. Money offers us pleasure, diversion, recreation. I can go have fun. I can go play. If I've got lots of money, right, I can just be able to go do what I want to do. Money offers control and power and influence, maybe a seat at the table that we want to be a part of, right? If you've got the resources, right, you can get what you want out of life. Money offers us status and fame and recognition, right? You can kind of purchase publicity. Politicians are doing it all the time. How to get my name out there and uh, be uh, a star, be an influencer, in every generation and culture since Jesus' encounter with this rich man, people have wrestled with the hold money has on our lives. Some have renounced riches completely, right? Some have taken that radical step. Others have found ways to steward their resources for God's glory, to redirect those funds away from themselves into kingdom purposes, to truly lay up treasures in heaven. But for others, riches have been a stumbling block, right? That's what sent them uh, walking sadly away from Jesus. And as hard as it is to talk about money, how we handle money is fundamental to our discipleship, right? Uh, if you want to know right where your heart is, you can look at your bank account. You know, Look at where your money is going. Look at your little mint register and go, hey, here's where I'm spending all of my money. It's a 
helpful if painful diagnostic tool uh, for our hearts. But, but riches aren't the only thing that keep us from following Jesus, are they? And by American standards, you know, most of us aren't uh, rich in this room. Certainly many of Jesus' disciples weren't rich, right? They had to leave different things to follow Jesus. They had to re- leave their professions, right? Their families, their, their ideologies. Peter, Andrew, James, and John left their nets, right? They left all that they knew about fishing. Matthew left his tax collecting booth. Judas, his identity as a revolutionary zealot. He had to leave that lifestyle behind, right? There are a lot of idols that stand between um, us and of following, wholeheartedly following Jesus. Let me just give you 10 for your reflection here. I had to tone it down from the 20 that Tim Keller lists in his gospel-centered life, but they're, they're, they're on point, and so I pick some selectively. If you need extras, come talk to me afterwards. I'll, we'll, we'll talk about some extra idols here, uh, but right at the top of the list, work idolatry, right? These are the things that get between us and Jesus. Life only has meaning. I only have work if I am highly productive in getting things done, right? Our work, the things that obsess us and consume our time can get between us and Jesus. Uh, maybe a family idolatry. Here we are in, in West Michigan, great place to raise a family, right? This is the, it's the family-friendly center of the world. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if my children and my parents are happy and happy with me and we have a happy family, right? That's what so many people are pursuing here. And that can get in our way sometimes of following Jesus. Uh, maybe an ideology, idolatry. What does that mean? Life only has meaning and I only have worth if my political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence and power, right? We, we wrap our lives so much in politics and our causes that, that it gets in the way of following Jesus. How about a relationship, idolatry? Anybody? Uh, life only has meaning. I only have worth if Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me, right? That, that, that's, a real, that's a real thing. Uh, racial or cultural identity, idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if my race and culture are ascendant and recognized as superior, right? We see this, some of these nationalistic impulses out there in our culture today and all kinds of different strands or different ideologies. Approval idolatry, getting more to the heart level, right? Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by this person, you know, instead of Jesus, right? I found this person that I have to have their approval. I have to have their respect. Achievement idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work, right? We can get so busy doing for Jesus that we don't have any time to be with Jesus, to actually spend time with him. How about image idolatry? Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have a particular look or body image, right? If I have this aesthetic that, that people are going for, people are going to like me because of that. A power idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have power and influence over others, right? That can definitely get in our way of following Jesus. Or a control idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of you fill in the blank, right? So how about you? What has your heart this morning? What keeps you from wholeheartedly following Jesus? Don't ignore the areas Jesus might be tenderly putting his finger on this morning. He loves you, right? And just like this rich young ruler, he wants to put a finger on areas in your life that are going to keep you from wholeheartedly following him and experiencing the abundant life in his kingdom. So Jesus loves us enough to reveal our idols, 
But once we are aware of them, how can we give them up, right? That's the real question, right? We know those things. We know the hang-ups, our compulsions, what we have to have, what we need, um, what we can't live without, um, the stuff of our dreams and our nightmares. Uh, but how do we give them up, right? That is the question, which brings us in verse 27 to the impossibility of discipleship. Yes, the impossibility of discipleship. Uh, look what Jesus says in verse 27, after the disciples have just asked, who then can be saved? Um, how is it possible for anyone to be one of Jesus' disciples? And Jesus looked at them, and I'm imagining here a dramatic pause as he is preparing to drop yet another punchline. With man, it is impossible. There you go. With man, it is impossible. Right? I mean, this is what we're talking about. Jesus has just finished telling them how difficult it is for people with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So difficult that it's like a camel walking through the eye of a needle, which is kind of an absurd picture, right, to imagine. Uh, camels passing through the eye of needles. Apparently, the rabbis use similar illustrations, like an elephant trying to pass through the eye of a needle. And people have tried ingenious ways to kind of uh, make this sound. Maybe it was a gate or something that people had to like. To, no, no, that's not what Jesus is doing here. That's not what we see in the original context. Uh, none of those references emerge till far later. Jesus is pushing on the impossibility of following Jesus on our own strength. Jesus wants his disciples to see the absolute futility of trying to gain an entrance into God's kingdom by their own goodness, by their own riches, by their own qualifications, right? Jesus has already said, no one is good except God alone, right? There is no way to buy your way into the kingdom of God or this man would have done it. He had great riches. He had all of these social graces, but Jesus turns him away. He lacks the one thing, right, that he needs to enter the kingdom of God, which is his neediness, his dependence. He, he lacks the humility to come to God with empty hands and receive his kingdom like a little child. Jesus is telling them, it's not just hard to follow Jesus on our own strength. It is downright impossible. And if you try to approach the call to discipleship that Jesus is offering us here in Mark's gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, in your own strength, in your own power, you will wear yourself out. You will burn yourself out. You will be exhausted, demoralized, find yourself burdened under shame and guilt and just crushed by the weight of the law. Because Jesus' vision for us is so much bigger than anything we could possibly do on our own. And that is why Jesus follows up this remarkable statement in verse 27. With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. I love those buts in the Bible, don't you? <laughs> But with God, all things are possible. Jesus said something similar to the father of that demon-possessed son back in Mark 9, 22 through 23, where he said, all things are possible to the one who believes. Right? All things are possible through God. How do we know that? How do we know that all things are possible through our great God? Well, we know this because there was another rich young ruler who actually did leave behind all of his heavenly riches so that he could give them to the poor and spiritually 
bankrupt. We know that since we could never find our way to God's eternal kingdom, God sent his son, the Messiah, down to us to rescue us. Right in hindsight, we know that this king was crucified, rose again, and seated on his throne to make all things possible. All of God's promises, we know, find their yes in Jesus, right? Forgiveness for our sins is possible. Forsaking our idols is possible. Eternal life is possible. Uh, Life in the kingdom of God, possible, all because of Jesus, right? And that is what this text is driving home. And maybe the clearest way Mark has been able to say it, discipleship as a human endeavor is absolutely impossible, Uh, But with Jesus in the foreground, with Jesus going before us, with Jesus uh, leaving behind all that we could never do, Jesus doing the thing that we could never do, giving up everything to come and reach and rescue and save the lost, right? With Jesus' grace in our lives, with Jesus' spirit empowering us, all of a sudden, this beautiful adventure becomes possible. In fact, it becomes a reality. It's become something that we participate in every day as the people of God. The disciples can just stop trusting in their own resources and enter the kingdom empty-handed like a little child. All things are possible. We get a new adventure to be a part of. We get to be a part of God's kingdom moving forward in the world, which is pretty exciting. So we've seen the cost of discipleship, the impossibility of discipleship and possibility uh, that Jesus has opened for us. And finally, uh, don't miss this because there's more. There's even better news here. Uh, Finally, the reward reward for discipleship. In verse 28, Peter starts reflecting on his own call to discipleship. It's interesting what he says here in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything to follow you. Peter's like, well, okay, so I'm not quite like the rich young man. I didn't have to leave a small fortune, but I guess, you know, I left behind like, you know, my family and I left behind my career and uh, left behind my lands. And Jesus wants his disciples to see that everyone who's counted the cost of discipleship to follow him will be richly rewarded. And he's just laying it on here. Jesus gives a short list of all the things you might have to leave behind, houses, family, lands, but then he promises 100-fold return in this life, right? If the disciples are at all worried about leaving everything to follow him, Jesus reassures them that the gains far outweigh the losses. For each home they leave behind, God will open up 100 new ones. For each family member they've lost, they will receive a hundred new brothers and sisters, a hundred new mothers and fathers, a hundred new children in the faith. For lands that they've left behind, they'll receive a hundredfold. Of course, persecution, tribulations, trials too, but they're not going to be alone. And Jesus is not going all prosperity gospel here and going like, yeah, you're going to have a jet and, you know, $250 sneakers and a Benz and like, nobody's saying, You lose family, you lose household, the things that matter most, you're going to get all of those things back a hundredfold. And I can just look back at my own life growing up in a really wonderful family, having great parents, great siblings, um, getting to hang out with them, being in some beautiful places, uh, living in different places around the country. Uh, But it's amazing, once I left behind, headed off to college, family and houses and land, 
It has been absolutely stunning. And I don't know if you've experienced this, how many people have opened up their homes to me, not because I was a pastor, but just because I was a Christian. Like in college, all the different homes that I have been in, all of the different brothers and sisters that I have in the faith, living down in Virginia at Liberty University, uh, living down in South Florida, living in Philadelphia, living out in Minneapolis, and being here 10 years in West Michigan— I mean, it's absolutely stunning the amount of people's homes I've been invited into and feasted by. It's been incredible the new brothers and sisters that I have, hundreds and hundreds of brothers and sisters that I know because of my faith in Jesus and the new lands that I've gotten to see being a part of his mission and his work. It's really an incredible, stunning thing. I always thought that was just kind of normal. I grew up with a lot of ministry folks. My parents were in ministry. I thought this is just how people live, right? You just, people just welcome you into their homes, and you have all these friends all over the world that, like, you know, all follow Jesus. And yet, I start talking to people who didn't have that Christian background, that Christian upbringing. I'm like, oh, that's not normal? That you would just like pop into a new city and immediately you have an instant family to surround you and love on you and support you and encourage you and pursue the mission of Jesus together? Like, that's stunning. And I hope it is beautiful to you. And that's just the age that we're in right now. And, and tribulation too. Uh, he's, he's, not, he's not whitewashing this whole thing. Like, there's gonna be pain and sorrow. And, and if you're there right now, that's a reality. Uh, I don't think that's the point Jesus is pounding on this week, but it's here. So, so hold that intention because Jesus has got hope, right? That's coming, life in his eternal kingdom where he will wipe every tear from our eyes where we will live with him forever in his eternal kingdom. Uh, all the sad things are gonna un- come untrue, right? We're gonna live with him forever. New heavens, new earth. If you're in the middle of that little and persecution and tribulations, boy, boy, look forward to that kingdom that is coming. And then Jesus concludes this teaching by saying, but many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. Um, This should really make us uh, think long and hard about who is first in the kingdom of God, right? The disciples thought this man was definitely somewhere at the front of the line to enter the kingdom of God because he had riches. He was a good guy. He had devotion to the law. He had all the social graces, but he ended up walking away from the kingdom. And that should be a cautionary tale for us, right? It's all too easy for us to evaluate who is first in the church, right? By the same markers our so culture assigns, by their power, wealth, fame, status, beauty, talents, right? Well, these people might be far from the kingdom, right? This should not be so among us. We should not be grading people, evaluating people based on all the same metrics that our society and our culture is grading people on. That's not how life works in God's upside down kingdom. It's the the last that are first and the first that end up missing out on the kingdom of God. And so hard-hitting text for this morning, Uh, some challenging things to be said. What does this mean for us for our Monday morning when we head back to the grind? (laughs) What do we do with a sermon like uh, this? Uh, Three things for you to think about, pray about this morning. Be on the lookout for those idols that keep us from wholeheartedly following Jesus and missing out on his kingdom. Uh, Let me just say here, notice this week, maybe take notice where you have strong negative emotions. Uh, Maybe where you have lots of anger, (laughs) where you have lots of fear, lots of anxiety. Look at those areas and you might, just you might, 
Find some idols lurking around there, things that you feel like you need and you have to have, and those strong emotions reveal, negative emotions reveal, right, that maybe you're putting way more status, way more stock in something where, than you should be. Maybe it's becoming an idol in your life. Are there maybe idols this morning that you just need to lay down at Jesus' feet, right, as we get time around the table to think and uh, reflect? Uh, what are you going to be doing this week? to daily release the hold that some of these idols have in your lives? Do you have time and space to be able to really reflect on the things that can grab a hold of our hearts and just hand them over to Jesus? Second, who is going to remind you this week that with God, all things are possible, right? You're going to walk out this door. You're going to forget everything that I said. And then you're going to need somebody to remind you this week that with God, all things are possible, right? That there is hope for you, whatever your situation, whatever your struggle, whatever your challenge. And that hope may have nothing to do with what I said this morning. Who's going to remind you that with God, all things are, whatever your impossible situation is, uh, who are you going to hold your impossible out to and have someone remind you that with God, all things are possible? We have some wonderful opportunities here. Uh, if you're in a life transformation group, you're getting together with a really small group of guys or girls and just digging, in, digging into each other's lives. Like, that is awesome. We are about to relaunch our communities. Yes, finally, Redemption Communities are coming back here, uh, launching this first week of March. You know, we've got 70 or 80 people that are all signed up here to jump in and be a part of communities here and small groups just sharing life together and home, sharing a meal, digging into scripture, um, praying for each other. I mean, I am beyond excited. Did I say I'm excited? I'm, I am so pumped about communities happening, having a context to be reminded of God's goodness midweek when I need it, when I start to uh, lose perspective and lose focus. There's some great women's Bible studies happening in the house. Lots of really cool stuff happening. And then finally, lastly, I'm getting long-winded here, sorry. Are you making space to regularly thank God for the rewards God has brought into your life, right? People who have welcomed you into your own simple things like that, right? Brothers and sisters in the faith, mothers and fathers in the faith, spiritual children in the faith that God has brought into your life. I think it is so cool to think about these privileges as we're doing that, we're relaunching communities. We're welcoming people in our homes, right? We're, we're going to be doing life with brothers and sisters together. Um, this is really exciting stuff. And I don't think we often pause long enough to just consider like what an incredible blessing it is to have people who are willing to walk alongside of us, share a meal with us, and journey with us through the ups and downs of everyday life, the challenges, the frustrations that we have. And so we've got all these rewards to consider. And I think sometimes we're a little shy about the beautiful gifts God has given us, the, the reality of life together in a church family, uh, the beauty of being a part of God's kingdom work in the world, and, uh, and then the eternal kingdom to come. Um, what a tragedy, right? <laughs> if we would miss out on the rewards God has for us. I want to close uh, with a little quote from C.S. Lewis, which I hope brings home to you that reality a little more profoundly in typical C.S. Lewis fashion, one of his classic quotes from The Weight of Glory. He says this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea 
we are far too easily pleased. And so my hope and prayer for you, Redemption City, is that we would press onward and upward into God's eternal kingdom, that we would leave behind here at the foot of the cross those idols, maybe, that have grabbed a hold of our hearts, right, that we could lay them down at the feet of Jesus and continue to head onward and upward into his eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the beauty of this community, uh, this group of people that we get to do life with together, uh, that we get to share uh, in community, the people that are walking alongside of us to remind us of the goodness and grace of God, the people that are going to sing together with us about the goodness of our God, the people that are going to open up their homes uh, with us, grab coffee with us when we need uh, their support and help. God, we thank you for this beautiful kingdom mission. You've called us on a mission worth selling everything we have to be a part of it. We're throwing everything off to be a part of your kingdom work in the world. What an incredible privilege we have. Would your spirit be working this morning to set us free from the idols that bind us, the things that have our hearts? God, would you be releasing idols this morning? Would you be freeing people from the things that have them trapped right now in their lives, God? And would we see just a beautiful Uh, just groundswell of kingdom work coming out of this church, all because of Jesus and all for his glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So each week here at Redemption City Church, we